It's no secret to listeners of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast that I'm a big fan of the great courses. And if you love learning about things at your own pace for the pure pleasure of it, then the great courses is for you. And that's why I'm excited about something new from the great courses, which is the great courses plus video learning service where you have unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. I really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving my listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, The Fundamentals of Photography, and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. The Fundamentals of Photography is filmed in partnership with the National Geographic and is taught by professional photographer Joe Sartori. I've been watching it and really enjoying it, and it's a great way to learn how to take stunning professional photographs, helping to capture memories of what we see and experience. There are also valuable tips on how to improve the composition of your photos, how to create photos of landscapes, people, and special occasions. With The Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And now The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value for free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett and start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. This is Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the actress Ileana Douglas. The narrator of Walker Percy's 1961 novel, The Moviegoer, tells the reader, quote, The fact is, I am quite happy in a movie, even a bad movie. Other people, so I have read, treasure memorable moments in their lives. The time one climbed the Parthenon at sunrise, the summer night one met a lonely girl in Central Park. What I remember is this time John Wayne killed three men with a carbine as he was falling to the dusty street in stagecoach, and the time the kitten found Orson Welles in the doorway in The Third Man, unquote. This passage resonates for those of us who are also movie lovers in the 20th century and found meaning in those experiences and memories, holding them to heart almost as much as the real and tactile experiences that filled our lives. A bit passive, a bit dreamy, enthralled to the idea of watching, seeing secret things, things we aren't supposed to see, which is what every movie essentially is. Those of us generations who fell in love with an art form are now detoxing, heading to movie rehab. The heroine of our youth is now basically the methadone of our adulthood, since American movie culture, and by extension film culture as well, is a degraded art form. More movies than ever are being made, only a very few are being seen, 
and no one is talking about any of them. I doubt that anyone decades from now is going to be as affected by movies in the same way that Ileana Douglas was in 1969 when she was a girl and accompanied her grandmother to see the movie Paint Your Wagon at the Radio City Music Hall and writes in her memoir, quote, All that I remember about seeing Paint Your Wagon with my grandmother is Lee Marvin's face, 50 feet high, singing Wandering Star. Still in that moment, I fell instantly and hopelessly in love. I could actually feel my heart ache when Gene Seberg chose Clint Eastwood over him. It was the first time I remember feeling an emotion, and that emotion was love. Now, maybe a psychiatrist could explain why I chose Lee Marvin as the object of my desire and not young and handsome Clint Eastwood, but those first movie images of Lee Marvin became implanted in my brain and were interwoven with romantic notions I carried for years to come, unquote. Now, I doubt anyone watching a TV show has ever felt such ardor or passion. It was the movie-going experience that ignited these kinds of emotions and let them bloom out of control. This was partly due to the investment of making the effort of going to the film and risking the idea of sitting in a darkened room with a group of strangers, which heightened the effect of watching the images on a giant screen. This does not happen anymore. American movies, where are they, what has happened, has been a constant conversation on this podcast and is going to continue with this one. I am just randomly going to read off a list of movies produced and or released through the American studio system from, let's say, 1971 through 1976. And you can silently compare this five-year period with, say, 2010 to 2016 and come up with your own conclusions. The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Last Picture Show, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, A Clockwork Orange, Straw Dogs, Cabaret, Deliverance, American Graffiti, Badlands, The Exorcist, The Long Goodbye, Don't Look Now, Mean Streets, Paper Moon, Sleeper, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Chinatown, The Conversation, California Split, The Parallax View, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Phantom of the Paradise, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Shampoo, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville, Carrie, Network, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I am not even going to read the rest of this list because it seems so pointless. But from 1970 to 1980 and a little beyond, these were the kinds of movies that were being made and being released and were talked about as an art form. But movies from the birth of a nation on were always an art form, one might argue, and this is true. But the 70s was the period when the artistry became especially self-conscious and when European filmmaking influenced a generation of American baby boomer filmmakers, resulting in this flowering of art within the commerce mindset of the big studios. You could say there was another spike in the independent movement in the mid to late 90s. But movies don't matter in the same way to today's younger audiences than they did to us. They don't mean the same things. My boyfriend, who is 29, has no reference point as to why we should be talking passionately about um, movies. He grew up seeing new movies as entertainment, not art necessarily. Who won The weekend? If movies aren't any good, then younger audiences don't care. TV is better than movies, and so what if movies are bad? There are a lot of good old ones, right? Go check those out. Stop bitching. No one cares. So one era is over, and a new one is moving in, and its name is simply content. It's a word people hate, but it is what it is, content. Everything merging under the same umbrella to be watched on a phone. It was unthinkable to me 15 years ago when a couple of my A-list screenwriting friends Yes, A-list screenwriter, an anachronism from a now long-ago era, suggested that maybe movies as an art form had a shelf life. They began in the 1920s, and they will have lasted about 100 years. We showed them in giant palaces. We waited in lines to see them. We wrote about them and argued about them, and we celebrated them with festivals and awards. Yes, this happened. Maybe it's just different now. 
I scoffed at this idea, but my friends were onto something that I hadn't yet seen coming. They envisioned a future where the $200 million movie reigned. It would open, it's shown worldwide on 30,000 screens, and in three weeks makes a billion dollars, and then next week there's another one. As a lover of American movies, that sounded alarmist, unrealistic, and frightening to me. There are more film festivals, film reviewers, and awards given to movies than there has ever been. And yet no real film culture conversation or large-scale intelligentsia discussion exists because the vast majority of movies just aren't interesting. They are in a state of arrested development now, and there is no indication that they are coming back. And yet, one may argue, maybe the demise of the movie is a good thing because of how much damage movies have caused. This is something I've always pondered because of the overpowering nature of watching movies in a darkened room with nothing else to focus on but that giant screen. They help shape our collective consciousness about romance, sex, fidelity, monogamy, our ideas about attractiveness, our expectations about love, while encouraging our voyeuristic tendencies and a kind of passivity. How many lives have movies ruined, really? Maybe it's about time they stop doing their damage. For those of you who remember Martin Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear from 1991, you probably haven't forgotten Ileana Douglas as the young woman who gets part of her face bitten off by Robert De Niro's deranged Max Cady. And one definitely can't forget her great turn in Gus Van Sant's To Die For as Matt Dillon's sister, which made her a character actress star throughout the rest of the 90s and into the oddies. Besides Cape Fear, there are roles in New York Stories, Goodfellas, Ghost World, Grace of My Heart, Picture Perfect, Message in a Bottle, Stir of Echoes, Factory Girl, Alive, Guilty by Suspicion, all movies that I do not think would be made now. Numerous television roles, including Six Feet Under, for which she was nominated for an Emmy, and Unbilled, perhaps, thankfully, in the Madonna, Misfire, The Next Best Thing. She created and starred in her own web series that ran for four seasons called Easy to Assemble, And she's recently published a memoir called I Blame Dennis Hopper and other stories from a life lived in and out of the movies. Ileana, let's start with a key movie from the counterculture era and one that directly influenced the trajectory of your childhood in your recent memoir. Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, which was released in 1969 and was the third highest grossing movie of that year behind Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Midnight Cowboy. And it located the beginning of the disillusionment and demoralization of youth culture post Tate Ashbury, the failure of the movement. And even though it's a movie ostensibly about the freedom of the road and drug culture, it's also about the end of a movement. And its bummer ending resonated widely. In fact, all three of those top grossing movies of 1969 end with the deaths of all but one of the leading protagonists. Butch Cassidy kills off Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Easy Rider kills off Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, and Peter Fonda. Well, Midnight Cowboy kills off Dustin Hoffman, leaving John Voight as the sole survivor of this group. Yes, this was the era in which you could pull this off, connect with a massive audience, and make remarkable sums of money. I don't think Easy Rider is a very good movie, except when Jack Nicholson is in it. But sometimes that doesn't matter in certain cultural moments. What the movie reflects becomes the more vital and important question. But it's doubtful that a movie like Easy Rider will ever come along again and have the impact or clout because movies are drastically less vital than they were in 1969. Easy Rider celebrated drug use and condemned the establishment and the status quo. And it's a reminder of what kind of movie is a cultural phenomenon now. I don't know which is, but... Elena, tell us, what happened to you because of that movie? I mean, this is a story that begins with you as a girl living in a large colonial house in a wealthy suburb, and you ultimately end up in a 
commune living off of food stamps. <laughs> I mean, all because of a movie. Well, I, obviously, everything you said resonated with me, especially when you said – that's why I called the, the, the book. I blamed Dennis Hopper, and when I met Dennis Hopper – you know, I said, how many lives did that movie ruin? Right. And he, you know, he kind of laughed. But, you know, my parents were movie going. They, they dated through the movies. My father's father was Melvin Douglas. So he yes. gr- grew up in the you know periphery of films, but was also a rebellious spirit. But, you know, they lived in Greenwich Village. They, you know, married kids, but, you know, went to the Thalias. So they courted through movies as the culture did when they moved to the suburbs. And in a sense, in my opinion, had really achieved with my mom's force because she was, you know, Italian-American, the American dream, which is what she wanted, to be a housewife, Mm -hmm. to live in Connecticut, to be in the garden club. Uh, and to be and to be wealthy and to be married to the mm-hmm. son of a movie star that was her life until they saw Easy Rider and that's why I find that so fascinating. My father became you know he he, he was transformed by the watching that film and mm-hmm. decided to throw out his entire life because I I think what I perceive and I'm you know I was a child but. He was in a white-collar job and driving a Buick Skylark and going to work every day. And I think, you know, with three kids, and he saw his life passing him by. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was – he convinced my mother – that's the part that's sort of the interesting part (laughs) Mm -hmm. to chuck everything and to leave his job and to start this commune you know called the studio and it instantly filled up with hippies which i also find funny there was no there was no internet i don't Mm -hmm. know how they found hippies Mm -hmm. but you know pretty soon they were (laughs) they were there but they all wanted to be Dennis Hopper. Nobody wanted to be, and it's. I agree with you. The movie has a lot of flaws, and Jack Nicholson is really the spine of the movie. But everybody wanted to be Dennis Hopper, and right. some people wanted to be Peter Fonda. But you know, my father started uh, doing his own, as I said, his own like crazy rallies and going to peace rallies. And I actually thought that's what my father did for a living. <laughs> you know, was get dressed up and mm-hmm. you know. Uh, take the American flag and go to these, you know, smoke pot and go to these peace rallies. And um, but what the movie represented to them was freedom. And freedom mm-hmm. now represents, you know, Donald Trump and you know, guns and I got a right to own my gun. But freedom then was freedom from money, freedom from the Garden Club, the the kids in private right. schools, the you know keeping up with the joneses that's what they that's what they didn't want now to me as a child that that's everything i wanted You're right at, at first it was colorful and all, all these people and it's fun and you know the ponchos and everyone's making pottery and swimming naked but the problem with free love is it's expensive and so mm. you know my father drained our bank you know drained our bank account to fulfill this dream and very much like Dennis Hopper himself once that dream came crashing down you know the drugs and excess it was like we were thrust into this world where i was like okay now i'm a you know now i'm a teen and we're poor and i college isn't an option and and so it but the values of rebelliousness were instilled in me through my father and so for that i eventually forgave him. <laughs> I want to get back to that idea of voyeurism and how movies more than any other art form encouraged it. 
You write about when you went to a drive-in theater in Vermont one mm-hmm. summer at the end of the 1960s, and you were watching Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet with Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting, whose gorgeous young ass is prominently displayed in a nude scene. And the movie was a huge hit with young and old audiences in 1968. And you write that you realized you had seen something you weren't supposed to see, which is the essence of movies. And, and you make the connection between the almost erotic voyeurism that movies supply simply by being movies. Um, the critic Pauline Kael completely tapped into this idea, movies as a turn-on, an erotic experience, and the power you give something by watching it and then letting it overtake you, ravishing your senses is what a movie really is. And add to this long ago, this idea was heightened by the fact that young people would often go to a movie or a drive-in theater so they could get away from home and parental authority and have sex and make out within the confines of a drive-in or the darkness of a movie theater. Did you still have that sense while you were going to the movies that you were watching something kind of forbidden you weren't supposed to see? And was it kind of a bit of a sensation, a bit of an erotic sensation? I mean, that's I tie in everyone's first movie-going experience, and I always ask people, what was the first movie you saw, and what was the first experience? And I, you see again and again, sometimes with, with directors, friends, that they tap into whatever experience it was. And from my experience, I immediately became an observer of my parents' movie. Their movie was Easy Rider, hippies, drugs, nudity, it was some of it was pretty scary and i didn't want to be in that movie once i discovered that my grandfather was melvin mm-hmm. douglas i was like oh i want to be in a black and white movie right. where they're sipping champagne and they go to nightclubs and so i didn't know you know it goes back to the summer experience where they were going to the drive and i didn't know what the drive in meant but it was like you're too young you can't go to the drive in and so my gra- my grandfather said don't worry about it I'll take you and get in his car, which was a Mercedes, you know, 1959 convertible, mm-hmm. just spectacular yeah. with my grandfather. And I believe that, yes, in the dark, nudity, sitting next to my grandfather, who's an older man who wears cashmere and is just incredibly elegant, and that closeness with him and the romantic music and the nudity everything tied together it's like well why do i have this like why do i love older men Mm -hmm. why do i gravitate Mm -hmm. towards towards that it's like our brains are wet cement you know at that age and so it's like that forbidden love that ideal of uh, olivia hussey being my perfect ideal of beauty where does that come from it right. comes from that. It, there is no other reason. Why do I seek again and again these kind of romantic, doomed romances? You know, in my childhood, I gravitated towards, you know, the Jane Eyres mm-hmm. and all the doomed, you know, and did it come from trying to replicate that romantic experience? And why I wrote about the drive-in was that wonderful romantic experience that I had with watching Lee Marvin and Romeo and Juliet, my grandfather, and then being thrust into, you right. know, dusk till dawn horror movies. Right. That's my childhood. It was interesting when you were listing off the 70s and mm-hmm. then as we go into the 80s and like the romance turned to, you know, butchering horrible films and the romance kind of died. But you also write about something that I touched upon, too. You write in your memoir, I think all movie lovers have some sort of void or sadness in them that movies fill. I agree with this, but I was wondering specifically, what does that mean to you and how does that connect with you specifically? 
I think that, as I said, when I was a kid, I I truly felt that I the person who was my father disappeared. I had this, you know, this this father. We lived in Connecticut, and then once he saw Easy Rider, he became a Den- he became Dennis Hopper. He became a replica of somebody else that I never really had an experience with. So let's check him off the list. My mother became ingrained in in fulfilling whatever that role was. Lost the mother. She became this kind of character. So now I'm I'm looking around. I gravitated towards my grandparents who took me to movies, and I think that for me, movies became uh, a solace of the okay if i've if i've lost my parents and i don't have any life and we don't have any money and we i've got a i've got to dream something and so to me the dream was to be in this movie and so i made these people i think it was my psychological you know way of protecting myself i made richard dreyfus yes. my friend and liza minnelli my friend yes. and i knew that somehow if i could get in that movie you know, that everything was going to be okay. The other thing I was thinking about while reading your book was the notion that when you talk about seeing a movie like Paint Your Wagon, not a very good movie, but still, you watch it on a 50-foot screen, a 50-foot tall movie screen at Radio City Musical, and being in awe of the vastness of the image. I mean, I wonder now about how movies are watched now and because of how they are watched how they are made then, you know, I mean, looking at the best picture nominations from last year, I mean, really, except for The Revenant and Mad Max Fury Road, everything else seemed to have been made to be watched on a small screen or on a screener. And they weren't made for the massiveness of the movie screen. And it was, you know, made to be watched elsewhere. And I guess, primarily to be watched at home. And I guess I'm asking, do you still go to movies with that expectation of, you know, that anticipation of excitement and going to be ravished now? Or is it a very different relationship that you have with movies now? No, I do. I mean, movies are my drug. I I, agree. Yes. You know, there is a whole feeling if I go to the New Beverly or the Cine Family Uh or, or, and I try to see, you know, because I'm in the Academy, I try to see a lot of the movies in the theater, um, you know, and there's very few people left that I'm excited about, except for like, you know, Quentin Tarantino. Like, right. oh my God, it's going to be a 70 millimeter film. Yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. be great. And so it's like, yeah, I my heart slow, my heart rate slows down, the lights go down, and I feel at peace. I mean, it's I like agree. going to, uh, you know, movies are in a sense my, you know, my religion. That's probably old style thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is because when you write, I mean, what was so kind of. Uh, uh, remarkable uh, about reading your book is the sense that you have of the 1970s. And you write in the book that, quote, the 1970s were the decade when watching movies helped form and change me into the actor I would later become. And going through all the movies that you mentioned, seeing the book as a reminder of, again, what was happening that decade. You talk about MASH, Serpico, Bang the Drum Slowly, The Sugarland Express, American Graffiti and Jaws, your Richard Dreyfus crush, um, Scarecrow, Report to the Commissioner, <laughs> Nashville, Carrie the Rose, an unmarried woman. You even talk about Blazing Saddles, Freebie and the Bean, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. And you also remind us about the amazing variety of weird horror movies from that decade as well. Burnt Offerings, The Reincarnation of Peter Brown, It's Alive, When a Stranger Calls, Squirm, and S- 
which I remember seeing as a young child and being freaked out by. Uh, Cronenberg's, they came from within. Now, you know, this is just a sampling of movies you mention in your book, and by no means are they all great or even worthwhile. But they are examples of a period where a kind of idiosyncratic analog film was being made. And looking back, uh, not to belabor this so much, but I'm interested in your your thoughts on this. What are your biggest takeaways from that era when you think about it? I mean, not only the movies you like the most, but your overall feeling now about that era. My boyfriend kind of gets it when I show him movies from that era. But some people think, you know, overrating the 70s is a huge thing because surely there were a lot of terrible movies. It wasn't all a wall-to-wall golden, period. Or does it remind you, like for some of us, because I, like you, I go to a lot of movies, I keep up with everything, it is a drug for me as well, but I also feel sometimes that movie culture is over. I feel that the what, what was happening in the 70s was that movies were being made uh, still, and, and I, I'm guilty of this, it still comes out of like this 1950s kind of socialist movement. So people like Martin Ritt that were directly uh, involved with the blacklist, and they also came out of, you know, uh, the Marlon Brando school of acting. It was, you know, an Ilya Kazan um, and Harold Klerman, and it was, you know, they went from the theater, and, and I'm also a huge proponent of early live television, mm-hmm. you know, John Frankenheimer, yeah. Sidney Lumet, and these were, they were, you know, post-war films, the films had a message, and, and they were, yes, there were movies that were entertainment, but it was like fifty percent of those films were also made for you to be socially aware of something and to change people's minds or to open people's minds about about something. That has gone out the window, and I think that the seventies again had that in spades. It just and I do believe it kind of started with Easy Rider. Now that was just very free form, but. You know, they it was tackling more, you know, regular people stories for regular people. But again, we get into movies, you know, like I was I had just interviewed Barbara Koppel, who's a personal Mm -hmm. hero of mine, Harlan County, USA, 1976. Mm -hmm. She won the Oscar for that, didn't she? She won won the Oscar for for that film and then also her subsequent film, American Dream. But that influences a movie, you know, like Norma Ray and a a whole series of other Mm -hmm. films that they were going hand in hand. And I think that movies were considered to be an art form. But I think we were still in this 50s socialist uh, frame of mind to doing our mo- our movies. There were other people then coming in on the sidelines, of course, and you have you know Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and they're the upstarts and they're doing right. their thing. You know, I recently hired a 23-year-old assistant who had just graduated from film school at USC yes. just this last June. And as we were talking during our initial meeting, he told me that, yes, they all studied movies, but there was no one in his class who was talking about becoming a film director. It was just not part of the conversation. He said, that's over. That's old empire thinking. They were thinking only about visual and, yes, that dreaded word again, content, meaning they don't look at movies that way. They don't mm-hmm. see them in, that, in, in the same way that we do. Even though he said we watched Antonioni movies, we were from German cinema, we watched everything, but still no one was talking about, I'm going to get out and become a movie director. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was kind of shocked by that. It was an interesting moment. And it suggested, it suggested when I was sitting in my office, the end of something. Mm-hmm. And if you're an optimist, maybe the beginning of something else. 
I, I just wonder what that something is because, you know, this is endemic to the culture at large with young people. Movies don't really matter. You ask young actors what they think about Spencer Tracy or Montgomery Cliff. They have no idea who you're talking about. Yes. And I met a young actor in an audition. I'm making a web series and uh, a few months back, and he didn't know who Warren Beatty was. He had no idea. He was 19. He was a big Instagram star. Had no idea who Warren Beatty was. So it's just a reflection, I guess, of how fast the mm-hmm. culture is moving. What is going on in terms of this? Is, see, this is I, I don't want to be the pessimist about movie culture, but when mm-hmm. I'm kind of confronted by all of this. It's in my face. One of the hardest things, and I, you know, is to make art in spite of feeling: is anybody going to see this? Is any going to? Is any going to? Anybody going to want this? It's what upsets me with the younger people is not only do they not know who Warren Beatty is or Spencer Tracy is, but they really don't care. And my generation was, you know, when I was living with my grandfather, Melvin Douglas, I honored everything he did. So I'd go to his bookshelf and I'd see Herman Hess and they'd say, okay, I'll read that, even though I didn't know what it was. And you read books that adults read because you you know, because Correct. as my grandfather said, you don't get to sit at the grown-ups table unless you're smart and interesting and can tell a good story. Right. And that has gone out the window with parents, you know, pampering their kids and everybody wins an award and right. this, this kind of thing. And also, as I write about in my book, which is really unfortunate, you know, I say it was fun to be famous when no one was famous, but now everyone's famous and I'm obsolete. Right. And and I realized that around, <laughs> you know, 2000. <laughs> when you know they chose react you know i was i was killing myself on this you know which it's so funny it's very prevalent now these like uh, meta celebrity shows Mm -hmm. but i did one called iliana rama way way back in the day and it had jeff goldblum in it and daryl hannah and ed bagley jr justine Mm -hmm. bateman all these wonderful people and but no they did a reality show you know uh, right with uh, Faye Dunaway picking starlets. I mean, it was completely crazy. Well, part of the uh, mandate from the studio that we're making the web series from is that we have to cast influencers, which are YouTube stars. Yes. Because they are more important to the younger audience than movie stars are. The movie stars are... They don't mean anything. They don't... They're not, they're not tracked by yes. young people in, in that way. And I, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to this idea uh, and trying you to... shouldn't. Figure- You you shouldn't. It's poison. Somebody who is powerful like you needs to say, because I can say it, but I'm not powerful. And so when I say it, it it means, you know, nothing. But somebody like you can actually say, because here's the thing. I wrote this book for fans, for my movie fans. Everybody will tell you. Nobody wants to read your book. Nobody wants to see your movie. You know, we're just inundated with this kind of negativity. But you know and I know that there is a tribe out there that wants to see you, Mm -hmm. your art, your words, your expression. And so you have to fight through that muck. All of us are experiencing this now like, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. Everywhere around us, it's like, no, uh, to be smart is the worst thing. You know, you want to have these YouTube people and somebody has to say, no, enough. We have to take less money and risk that we're doing this for our audience because it, you know, the, otherwise we're going to be huddled together drawing, drawing pictures in a cave somewhere, <laughs> you know, for five people that get us. But we're killing art. I mean, we're self-destructing. 
I only need to cast two of them in an ensemble. So I'm not that worried about it. And we can cast other actors around them. And and I have to say, a yes. couple of the the roles, it, it, this yeah. not having this uh, a kind of like unactorly mannerism where they can't really act, it can give you strange Don't you think, effects. though, that this is just a way for the man oh, yes, it is. to have control? Oh. Because isn't it always it is. something? It is. You've got to cast a young girl, and, and she's got to be really hot, and she's got to have this. Okay, it's got to be for boys 18 to 35. Mm-hmm. Now it's it's got to be a YouTube star. It just it just keeps changing, but I think it's to, it's to rest control away from the artist. But it's so interesting, because it reminds Reminds me of Melvin Douglas in a, in a strange way of how far we've come. You know, yes, your grandfather was Melvin Douglas, who won supporting acting Oscars for HUD in 1964, and then again for being there in 1980, and he was nominated for I Never Sang for My Father in 1971, and was really a movie star with a 60-year career. He worked with everyone from Lubitsch, Nanochka in 1939, all the way to Polanski in The Tenant in 1976. I really am interested. I mean, I've read your book, and I, uh, but I am interested, w- sitting here now, what is the one thing that you really learned from him? What did he pass on to you? Because you were close. I think you have the being there, Oscar. The, the, the yes. Reason. What is the one thing that you say, okay, from Melvin, this is what I, my biggest takeaway? Intelligence. Intelligence is to is to know your subject is to know if you're going to be an actor, you have to know how to speak well. You have to know about film history. You have to be well read. You have to go to museums. I know. I understand. These are all very fifties. That's why I say I go back to the nineteen fifties. You have to go to dance class, and you go to the movies, and you go to the theater, and you read the New York Times, and you read you read the paper, and you're well informed. And I understand that all of those skills are not necessary anymore, but I'm clinging to Mm, them. I agree with you. Look, this is why we're having this podcast discussion. Yes. Because you meet people in your journey that although you want to give up, that, that you go, yes, I'm not crazy. It is more important to be intelligent. It is more important to be well-read, to say, you know what? I'm not going to think about business today. I'm going to go see the Stanley Kubrick exhibit. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to learn about art today. And I, 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 that thirst for knowledge and for curiosity. And then finally, the thing, which is I opened the book for it because he took my hand and he was incredibly strong, you know, and said, when you find someone that you can learn from, you hold on to that person. And I've gravitated, a bell goes off in my mind whenever I meet someone. Uh, you know, I met Barbara Koppel and I'm like, I want to take a year off and just like right. sit behind her and learn from her. And my quest for learning has always been much more important than my quest for money or fame. Mm. Because I think in the end, when we're on a deathbed, right? I want to say, man, I had a had a great life. Right. I learned so much. I, you know, and I have no regrets. Yeah. Uh, 
I watched Being There Again recently. My boyfriend hadn't seen it. And I was struck by the fact that it seems like, in a weird way, what we've come to know as a high-end independent movie. Um, it's this very funny, entertaining, elegantly made comedy with commercial appeal by a big director. And it's nominated for Oscars and it's well-reviewed and it's a studio movie for adults. Okay, well, this used to happen. We've already established that. <laughs> and again, when I show my boyfriend movies from the 70s made in that way and on that scale with proper budgets, he gets why there was passionate feelings about movies then. I mean, when I showed him Taxi Driver or maybe it was Dog Day Afternoon, he was shocked. He looked at me and said – they made movies like this, and people went to a movie theater to see them. This wasn't for television. He loved them, but it was still like he had to be shown them and you know taking them to the proper place. But your first set that you went on was being there. That was your first movie set. It stars Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine, for those of you who don't know about this. It was based on the Jersey Kaczynski novel and directed by the great Hal Ashby. And you had a big crush on Peter Sellers, and you're on this set. What was it like for you the first time? Because it can be very exciting the first time you're on a set before the romance of it all kind of dissipates. Well, incredible. Again, the experience begins with me of just being in my grandfather's, you know, massive suite, mm-hmm. <laughs> ordering room service, town car to the set. Contrast that with home, commune, right. the mom saying, you know, this morning, uh, peanut butter or jelly? You know, and now I'm thrust into, again, replicating this experience that I think from the drive-in next to my grandfather, older man, elegant, you know, and everybody is so nice to him. And we get to the set. And again, it's it's being filmed at a castle and it's dark and people are working. And I just said, this is it. This is this is us. This is the secret world that I dreamed about in my bedroom with all my movie posters that I always believed existed. Mm -hmm. And I always believed somehow I would get here. And I don't know how I don't know. I didn't even have a plan to be an actor. I just had a plan to be in the movies in show business in some way. And now I was on the set. And my grandfather was acting and they sat me, you know, like a little girl. They sat me next to the director who at the time, again, I didn't – who knew that it was – you know, I I had no awareness that it was Hal Ashby and that I would later become obsessed with Hal Ashby. Mm -hmm. But it was like that feeling of just relaxation of Mm -hmm. like, okay, okay, there's this great world. I have to get into this magical world of watching them and there's – Peter Sellers acting, and my grandfather knows Peter Sellers. It wasn't so much about my grandfather. It was like, he knows him. He's talking right to him. I have a poster on my wall of Peter Sellers, and they're in a movie together. Just for my own gratification, I want to know something. Your grandfather did not go to the 1980 Oscar ceremony because he couldn't bear competing with child actor Justin Henry for Kramer versus Kramer. And uh, the other nominees that year were Mickey Rooney for The Black Stallion, Robert Duvall for Apocalypse Now, and Frederick Forrest for The Rose, which I forgot about. Was this true that your grandfather did not want to go to the awards because of not only, I think, Mickey Rooney and a horse and Justin? Well, he did say it when I said to him, Grandpa, you won. He said, yes, I beat a child and and a (laughs) 
and a, a horse. horse. But he was a favorite to win too that year. But he, did, he just didn't want to go to the ceremony. I don't think he. Well, my grandmother was. My grandmother did have cancer at the time, okay. so it was. We, it had been discussed that I was actually going to go with him to mm-hmm. the Academy Awards, and then it didn't. Uh, it it ended up that it didn't happen. And I think I think that some of it had to do with that, but then some of it also had to do with the idea that my grandmother was ill. He did not prominently display his awards, though. They were in a, a closet. Mm-hmm. He had like a clothing closet, which, of course, I, every time I'd go, you know, mm-hmm. if he would leave, I'd take them all out and, you mm-hmm. know, arrange everything, take pictures of them, mm-hmm. all of his awards. <laughs> We've talked about the method on this podcast, the method being Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio technique, which emphasizes sense, memory, and place more than the text itself. And your favorite actor, Marlon Brando, used the method, and yet you rejected the method. Why? Mm-hmm. What, what was it about the method that you just could not wrap your head around? Okay, so a quick thing of the method is it comes out of uh, Stanislavski and Stella. At, so they're doing Stanislavski. This is like late 40s, and it's Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler, right. and Lee Strasberg and Harold Klerman. Uh, Stella Adler goes to Russia, and when she comes back, she says, hey guys, we're doing this all wrong. Lee Strasberg says, no, I'm right and they're wrong. So he develops the actor studio style of, of acting. Stella Adler has her version and Sanford Meisner has the neighborhood playhouse listening and answering. So for for people who like Marlon Brando, his because I asked him when I met him about Stella Adler, and he said that you know Lee Strasberg actually damaged many people's acting, especially Marilyn Monroe, and that he followed more the Stella Adler school. Mm-hmm. So he rejected a little bit of the right. some of the method. And the reason I reject the method is because what Meisner does is it's all about the other person, meaning I'm not acting like a bull in a china shop. It's I'm trying to condense this. So Strasbourg is it's all about your place, your sense memory. And you're, you're wrapped up in this cocoon of, okay, if you're doing the seagull, you're like, I'm Nina, and uh, I'm cold, and I'm living in Russia, and it's the 1900s, and, and you place yourself in that. But the problem is, with for me, that's like studying for a test. You know, you're, you've got it all in your brain, and you're going on stage, and you're trying to retain it. And if you're acting with another person, and I've acted with people that follow the method, and they're very hard to penetrate, because they're wrapped up in this cocoon of what they are doing. Now, that may be interesting for them, but they're not engaging and it's not alive. What Meisner does is that you do all that preparation, but then when you enter the room, you have to trust that it's still there, but listen and answer. And a perfect example is, you know, um, you, you you have a roommate, you come home, you know, you have just witnessed somebody saying, uh, being hit by a bus, and then you come into your apartment and your roommate is throwing you a surprise party because it's your 40th birthday. So you can't hold on to the pain you've just experienced. You adapt to what is happening and yet that's what's beautiful about it you'll have the sadness the happiness the sadness the happiness it's moment to moment to moment well movie acting as we all know is incredibly different from theater acting and it's very Mm -hmm. interesting that mike nichols once told you that as an actress when he's watching you quote you manage to be both in the movie (laughs) and outside it commenting to us in the audience 
And you've also said that for you, movie movie acting is really just simply about concentration in the midst of chaos. How do these two things kind of correspond to each other? Mike Nichols says this about you while watching you on a film. When you're acting in a film, that's what you're concentrating on. And very rarely does it work in terms of an actor's favor. You talked about great differences between certain movies you made where one movie just completely spoiled you for the idea of what screen acting could be like for an actor. And then other movies are just like there, sit there, move there, you know. Yes. Well, the Mike Nichols thing was a revelation to me, as I, as I said. Like, you know, my whole journey was I just wanted him to sign my Nichols in May album. That's the only reason <laughs> I was there. I'm standing next to Glenn Gordon Karen. You know, he's just looking at me like, you know, only you could get away with that. And I just shyly handed over the album. And I didn't think that Zeus was going to look up and make this pronouncement, you know, uh, and even know who I was. But th- that's what was so, you know, he didn't even say my name. It was just like, you. You know what I like about you? You know, and I was like, Mike Nichols is talking to me. Zeus is talking to me. Mm. He's making it a pronouncement, you know, and then he made that comment. And I did have this moment of like, it, it all rang true for me because I went back to the idea of being there. I was out. I was outside. I'm watching. Am I in the movie or am I out of the movie? And then by the time I get to do a film like To Die For, which is essentially two films, it's one film that I made with Gus Van Zandt, which is very highly improvisational Mm -hmm. before everybody got there, in which I'm once again, in a sense, sitting next to the director, this childhood experience of being placed next to the director, being his compatriot, and coming up with all the things, and then acting in a movie that's a narrative film. And they don't know about everything I've done. right? So they don't know that I know that she's, you know, a, a, a murderer. So some of that was accidental. But once he identified that that was a skill, I have used that skill to my advantage um, in subsequent films. And I, uh, and, it, and it's an odd place to be in that sometimes I am simply hired to be both acting in the film and to be helping the director uh, and the audience. I mean, I'm actually, I'm like a wedge, you know, to be, uh, that, that, that they've, that's why they've hired me. Like, we've got this role. We don't know what the hell to do with it. Let's put Ileana in there because she'll be the one that the audience <laughs> identifies with. One of your first movie jobs while working for the very powerful PR whiz, Peggy Siegel, in New York in those heady days of the late 80s, uh, is working on Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Could you just briefly tell us what this job entailed? And this was the job that introduced you to Scorsese, the man who later became your boyfriend. Yes, it was incredible. And again, very much like a movie, like movies that I saw. My dream was you go to New York, you wear nice clothing, and you work for a powerful boss. And somehow you either get a boyfriend or you get married or you become the head of the company and you're Joan Crawford. Like those were my, you know, the. and sure enough, I ended up working for Peggy Siegel because I had a vast knowledge of movies and, and people who mm-hmm. made movies and people that were in the theater. And so I got this great job at the Brill Building. My first day of work, I rode the elevator with Elaine May and Warren Beatty, and they were talking about Ishtar. And I was like, okay, I'm done. This is the greatest, Mm -hmm. this is the greatest job ever. And it led to, you know, this association uh, of working with Marty. And once again, when I got this film job uh, working for her, I actually was debating 
Again, I was not thinking so much about acting because I couldn't get any acting jobs. But I was there, and everybody always, wa- everyone in the office always wanted, if we were doing the Untouchables, you know, I want to be with, Ke-, you know, there would be fights like, oh, I want to be with Andy Garcia. Mm-hmm. I want to be Sean Connery. I'm like, I want to be the director. Like, right. that's where all the action is happening. Right. And so, again, I was schooled in. Being uh, around Norman Jewison, Brian De Palma, you know Rob Reiner for The Princess Bride, Barry Levinson, we were doing The Tin Man. I mean, Peggy Siegel was, again, this was the height, every yeah. important film. And so when the call came to actually act in a movie, yeah. it almost came as a, a surprise. You know, right. when Frank Perry came in and was like, you're an actor, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm an actor, answers the phones, I get it. Right. And then it was like, be in my movie. And then that led subsequently to my... Later meaning Marty. You know, the reality of an actor's life is not what the layman might think. You know, money is a constant factor. And I, I know a lot of actors who have good years and they have lean years. But getting jobs is the overwhelming priority. And this is just a fact. It was really disturbing a year ago hearing about Diane Weist, who was broke and couldn't afford her rent. I mean, just because you're in movies and TV, does everyone automatically thinks you're well off, you're rich or something. And believe me, not everyone I know is financially stable. You know, this is a fantasy, but people think that if you're on TV or if you're in a movie, you must have some money. The day you're on David Letterman, you are selling furniture out of your apartment to make the rent. Have you ever really been truly financially stable as an actress working in the business, or is it always fraught with a kind of financial peril? The one, the one time I sat back and said, "Oh, whoo," you know, then it all it all uh, disappeared, you know, through yeah. a bad relationship. But uh, you know, and that's again like that's I said to myself, "Oh, this is the part of the movie where the actress marries a complete imbecile and he takes all of her money." I can't believe it. Plot number 10 and you weren't even aware of this Uh, and then you have to come back and struggle and you got you have to say well i'm there's some other journey that would that uh that awaits me but financial insecurity for an actor is always prevalent and again just you know the the sag web series that i did which i made union so people could get better wages and again me thinking Oh, and now everybody is going to go along with what I established. No. no. Actors still make $100 a day. Shocking. I mean, even the cuts for writing and directing, um, yeah. you know, my agent and my lawyer, th- this was the first web series deal they did. And they said, don't take this deal. Don't take this deal. But now they understand it's the norm for web it's series. That's all there is. The movies, getting back to it, New York Stories, Goodfellas, Picture Perfect, Cape Fear, Guilty by Suspicion, Alive. But parts in Spike Lee's Jungle Fever and Woody Allen's Husbands and Wives and Robert Redford's Quiz Show and Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy and Nancy Savoca's Household Saints are all cut. How did you process this, not only as an actress, but as a human being? I mean, the disappointment must be massive. How do you not let it turn you bitter? And not becoming bitter is one of the first things you learn after you've been in this business for a while. What was the most crushing defeat out of this? I, I mean, again, I'm with a great director, you know, Martin Scorsese, who recognized something in me that I didn't recognize in myself, that he immediately, you know, he brought me into onto the editing room of Goodfellas, and I was making comments about the editing, and he was taking music suggestions for me um, and putting them in the film. And then I would go act in a movie, you know, uh, bless her heart, Nancy Savoca. But, you know, we're standing on the set and she's like, this movie is my raging bull. <laughs> I'm like, 
Yeah, I know that guy who made that movie. I don't know if this is exactly Raging Bull. And then I and then we go back and at the once again at the Brill building, you know, Marty is telling me Oh, they're cutting Household Saints of movies. It's in real trouble. It's re- He knows more about the movie mm-hmm. than I do. He's walking by and he said, I have movies in real trouble, you know. And having dinner with Spike Lee after I've been cut from his film. And, you know, that's the journey of, I think, of being an actor, number one. And I have to separate that my journey is to go on. You have to go on. I mean, you have to believe that you're here for more than just being in a movie and being cut from it. What I take from that is I did get to work with Ernest Dickerson and Spike Mm -hmm. Lee. And I had a great... And so I learned from that. You know, let's go back to my grandfather. I learned from the experience of of working with Nancy Savoca, Tracy Ullman, Vince D'Onofrio, Lily Taylor. And they stayed in touch with me. They stayed, you know, my friends. The experience of working on Quiz Show was tougher because I had auditioned for a bigger part and I didn't get that part. And then Robert Redford as a consolation prize (laughs) wanted me to play this bit part and I did it because, again, he had this tie to my grandfather. Mm-hmm. I literally spent more time in Robert Redford's trailer because every time we weren't shooting, he'd say, come to my trailer and let me talk to you about my grandfather. I was in the movie for two seconds. But so I tried to balance, like, well, I, what about all the time? I was holding up shooting. They were knocking on the door because he wanted to talk to me about my grandfather. So I try to understand that maybe i'm here to relay those stories about film which is a dying art which is why we're talking about you've it. also said that you would have gotten a lot more roles and flourished within the confines of the studio system rather than the, the period that you were working in and i ask who wouldn't at this point who wouldn't have who would have thought that the studio system would seem preferable to how things ended up and what roles do you think you would you would have been playing when you, when you say that like you would have flourished in the studio system well obviously i would have been eve arden i mean that's mm-hmm. uh, i think i would have easily been rosalind russell uh, very, very easily adapted to to somebody like her. She was actually from Connecticut, um, and so I think that what I liked about the seven uh, the seven year contract is they put you in small parts. If you identified with the audience, your parts got bigger, and that's how it worked. Simple and and straight, it, you know. So I think that I can, I've always felt. Uh, as my grandfather said, again, to use a really dated reference, to have the Woolworth touch was very important, meaning you, you know, now I guess it would be Target, uh, that you, that if, if people in the masses identified right. with you, right. you would always have a, a long career. But there is this traditional ideal of attractiveness for actors in the movies. Men don't seem to get it. It seems to be a female burden. Though it is interesting, while I've, in the last 10 years, uh, auditioning actors for roles Mm -hmm. and and helping cast stuff, I do meet a kind of young actor who is the good-looking actor, who's blonde, blue-eyed, all-American, chiseled in a way, who always is called in, they told me, to read for either the jock, the sneering preppy, the dumb oaf boyfriend, and that they are never called in for character parts. They're never called in for the villain, for the interesting Mm -hmm. parts in a movie. And that seems so interesting to me because I never really thought about that in terms of men. I always thought that women had to look a certain way to be cast in certain 
certain roles in films. No matter how liberal Hollywood is, no matter how liberated it thinks it is, it does have a very strict notion of how people should look and these, these ideals of beauty. And there was this story, but after a screening of the one big movie you starred in, Grace of My Heart, I think it was a female editor at a fashion magazine said that you did not look like the kind of person she wants to see in certain movies. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think, and I am, I, I know my answer growing up in a totally matriarchal household uh, controlled by women. Do women judge women more harshly than men judge women? Or is that a myth and this notion is completely changing? You know, the Taylor Swift, Amy Schumer notion that we're all girls together, we're going to all band together, we're all going to disprove this idea that we're just catty, competitive, you know, bitches in a way. Do you sense that that is an outmoded notion that's changing? Well, it's interesting going back to that uh, woman who wrote that, I dealt with her quite a lot at Peggy Siegel. So I knew, oh, who, I knew, mm. I knew who she was. I still know who she is. I see her all the time. And what's interesting, of course, because that comment haunts me, uh, <laughs> is that she's no, 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 in a good way, yeah. in a good way, um, is that. You know, she's had massive plastic surgery mm-hmm. and changed her ethnic looks to try to look more Aryan or something. I don't know. But obviously within herself, she has sought a certain kind of youthful perfection that doesn't exist. Right. And I've had to deal with all my life. I mean, you know, look at the girl on the cover. Um I think I'm beautiful. I always thought I was beautiful in face of people who kept telling me, mm-hmm. you're ugly, you know, you're not attractive, you can't be in the movies. I mean, this goes, you know, pe- the people will always be there to delve out this negativity. But, you know, what's interesting is like if I, I looked at foreign movies, I'm like, I look like everyone in the Italian film. Mm-hmm. You know, I look like everyone in a French film. So in the American ideal, um, uh, apparently I don't, you know, I don't fit the mold. But I thought that that was a, a crushing thing for a woman to write. And I asked her, I even asked her about it. And it made her incredibly uncomfortable, but she didn't, she didn't want to. Oh, aging, 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 just this constant time is ticking for everyone, but especially for the actors. And I I mean, I've been interested in seeing, I mean, you've worked with De Niro. Uh, You did uh, that stunning sequence in Cape Fear. And I'm constantly asked by people, what happened to De Niro? What happened to De Niro besides what? Getting older and the movie business he was nurtured by is now long gone. I mean, I don't know what to say to them. I mean, they talk about De Niro walking through roles, just collecting the money. And I do think that's true. I mean, I've heard from financiers that if you have the money, De Niro will be in anything you have. <laughs> and that he seems to just have checked out, that he knows in a way the gig is up and he's just getting to the finish line in a way. But I'm not sure that's true concerning his performances in Silver Linings Playbook, for example. And even in something as benign as The Intern, he brings a strange kind of authorial presence to a very, very lightweight movie. The fact that he's a working actor at 72 is kind of remarkable enough. And I'm just wondering, does this just happen to everyone? You get old, the parts dry up. I guess Paul Newman kind of evaded this to a degree. Nicholson kind of evaded it. Redford is still starring in movies. Um, John Voight is on television in uh, Ray Donovan. 
But I think De Niro gets singled out as a target because of the greatness of his performances in the 70s mm-hmm. and that there is this kind of fall off that really strikes something in people. It really gets people upset about De Niro and he becomes this big target. I was wondering, have you noticed this at all about De Niro or what are your feelings about what happens to an actor like De Niro within the confines of the film industry? Certainly Pacino does theater, uh, whatever, but still, what are your thoughts on De Niro? I think that, you know, and again, I can only comment as an as an outsider and then, you know, having worked with him on a film like Goodfellas, in which, again, the, that, that's why I wrote so extensively about the environment that was created to play and to make a work of art. And that no longer exists. You know, you're talking about an environment where Marty made crew members remove their watches, you know, where on the set of Cape Fear, De Niro caught somebody looking at their watch, you know, and the person is is yelled at, you know, because it was like, we are making art. And it must be very challenging to be in an environment where it's like, yeah, we have an hour, let's get this shot, let's get this shot. And so if nobody else cares, why should you care? And I, I understand what you mean. It's as if we're looking at him for some great yeah. piece of what he was. Right. And I still believe it's there. I still believe it's in all of these great actors, but you have to create the environment for them and appreciate uh, appreciate them. You were in a fairly long-term relationship with Scorsese, and yet you don't really go into it at all in the book. And I was wondering why you decided to go this way. I mean, having Scorsese as a boyfriend must have helped in some way getting doors open, I imagine. Or maybe or maybe it did not, looking at your facial expression. I mean, didn't he wasn't he instrumental in getting Grace of Your Heart made to a degree or not? No. Please debunk all of this for me. Yes. That's I mean again, as a longer conversation is the journey of a female actress, writer, director, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And I and I had a trajectory of my own I think as a writer director that was probably cut short because I was in a relationship and because I was in love with Marty is that I just started helping him being his facilitator his muse etc and that felt really really great and exciting and as a woman you wake up one day and you go oh great now I'm 35 <laughs> like, right. it's over so it, it's you forget about that t- that ticking clock but no it actually was a hindrance because because uh, movies like Grace of My Heart, I sought out Alison Anders. I wanted to make a movie with Alison Anders, but I and I knew that to facilitate doing that, I used, uh, you know, I asked Marty, who was my boyfriend and also a filmmaker that I admire, to be our executive producer. But what that means in the history books, this gets back to my show, Trailblazing Women and the lack of credit. Alison Anders and I completely put that film together and cast it and did all of that. And when I see it out there in Wikipedia, it says, executive produced by Martin Scorsese. And all he really was, with much respect to Marty, was the name that we used to add the power to get that film made. And the same thing with Search and Destroy. And and I put together Search and Destroy. And I put together a lot of things while working for uh, for Marty that I get absolutely no credit for. And it turns around and is like, well, you must have really helped your career. It's like, help my career. Right. It's like, it didn't 
helped. It didn't help my career uh, in the least because I was spending most of my time, uh, you know, helping him. That's not to say it wasn't great because I got, you know, nine years of film school. Well, Grace of My Heart is about the Brill Building musicians of the 1960s and a kind of thinly disguised bio of Carol King. And it's your big starring role and you're really good in it. But what happens to that movie? And we'll get to this in a bit about um, the trailblazing women. But it was supposed to be a woman's picture about every upheaval that happens in a woman's life. Love versus career, sexism, babies, marriage, adultery, divorce, drugs, contraception, mothers, abortion. I mean, the idea of making this movie now is over. We all know that. It would be on TV. It would be a TV series, basically. And at the time, you worried at the time that Grace of My Heart was um, coming out that it was going to make women mad because women do not want to think that a guy would interrupt their career. But you said that's a big secret because, quote, women always think that being loved is more important than being talented. That's a big statement. And it resonates. It really does resonate. Looking back on that movie and looking back at that experience, and how did the movie do? How did it get embraced by audiences or by by a wide variety of people? Well, you, you, you're going back to a time where, again, this is my suite in, in my own personal journey of I did this very low-budget movie called Grief, which, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, with Richard Glatzer uh, and his first film, it got into Sundance, and, that, and I met Alison Anders because based on uh, the advice of Marty saying, you know, you're, you're more interesting than these, the parts you're going to be offered, so seek out filmmakers, and if you find someone, I will help you get the movie made. And so the first person was, I saw this play, Howard Corder and, uh, you know, Search and Destroy, and adapted that into a film and literally at the same time I met Allison Anders up at Sundance and we were originally going to do a project about Anne Sexton and in through the process of doing that we could not get it off the ground and every time we would talk about Anne Sexton which I still think could be a great mm-hmm. film yes, yes. Um, we would talk about music and girl groups and we looked at each other and said well we got to do a movie about the Brill Building now this is what's interesting is that I don't know. Looking back on it now as a woman, should we have made it without Martin Scorsese? But I was, as a producer, I wanted to get the movie made and I wanted to have a budget. And so, of course, it seemed and, – and also we were, you know, we were in a relationship. We were lovers. We were – my whole fantasy – this is my whole fantasy wrapped up. Not only are we together, but we're like John Cassavetes in general. <laughs> and we're making a movie together, you know. So we made this we made this film together and Thelma Schoonmaker was the editor and making the film was just a complete labor of love. We put everything uh, into it. However, there were certain disagreements, artistic disagreements, that Marty and I had in the film that I believe hurt the film and hurt our relationship because that's where we get into our whole, again, referencing of film, Pygmalion, is that um, – you know, the student is now questioning. Oh yes, the master. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and he was. You know, and we had strong disagreements about certain areas of the film, and I lost those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lost those arguments, mm-hmm. and to this day, I think I'm right, mm-hmm. and I think it hurt the film. 
and that's the way it is. The film is there, and so the film is not only uh, it's it's there as a representation, not only as a movie, but of oh, this movie may have cost you your relationship. It may be the very thing. Um, I was living the film because my I wanted to be in love with the person who was a filmmaker, and I wanted to make my little films, you know. Mm-hmm. And now I found myself arguing with the master over the actual film that he has given me the opportunity uh, to make. And so that was pretty massive, you know, and that's what's happening in the film is like love versus career. It, it still is happening and is still going on. And I, so I think that all those undercurrents are in the film and it, I think that's a flawed film. I love it. I think, and people respond to this yes. film in a way I got so much work uh, post from the film. Gary Shandling was a huge mm-hmm. fan of the film. So people have loved the film. Roman Polanski mm-hmm. was a huge fan of the, the film. and I, So it has m- very many elements. It's a, obviously a soft spot for me. You hosted on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, and a great channel for anyone who doesn't know about it, a month-long tribute to female directors called Trailblazing Women. And where you would introduce a movie directed by a woman and talk about the marginalization of female directors and how people expected things to evolve and get better after Catherine Bigelow won the first and still only Best Director Oscar as a woman. Only three others have been nominated, Lena Vertmuller, Jane Campion, and Sofia Coppola. And I think it is instructive to note that the one woman who won that award made a movie that looks like a movie many men have made and have directed a man's movie about warfare with no women in it at all. And I wonder how much that made the Hurt Locker more palatable to the white male 60-year-old Academy member, probably more than The Piano did, probably more than Lost in Translation did, which do seem to have a very centered female viewpoint of how that relationship and what was going on on that island, what was works. I mean, there's unusual imagery in both those films that you really don't think of a man coming up with. I think that's true with Alison Anders' movies. I remember a movie that she made where we have a shot of a, a pregnant woman being made love to in a shower. I don't think a man would ever have shot that. that thing. And you're so surprised by it. I think I saw it in a couple of Ava DuVernay's, her early movie. There's just scenes between women that I just don't think a male could come up with. And I do believe there are gender differences in us. But what is going on in Hollywood right now is still quite shocking to people in the idea of how many women get a shot at directing and how many do not. But I also think that it's changing in TV. It's it's getting better in television. But the problem I have with the idea of a lot of women, I guess, complaining about getting work in Hollywood is that, well, what's the work? What is the work? And I guess female directors will move over into television where – the authorial voice of a director or their sensibility doesn't really exist. I mean, it's really all enthralled to the writing. So it's very hard. We haven't, we're not there yet with television where, oh, yes, I know who directed my favorite episode of Mad Men or I know who directed my favorite episode of that. There's not that kind of signature style that movies do have because movies depend much more on mood and atmosphere. That's just not true on mm-hmm. television right now. So I'm wondering what these shifts all mean. Where are you in this moment in terms of film versus television, women being hired for jobs? What do you think this is all about? 
Well, this show, Trailblazing Women, uh, has really opened my eyes in terms of, again, understanding that the first narrative film starts with Alice Guy Blachey in 1896. She made the first narrative film. That's not known. That's not recognized. The idea that women were directing films throughout the 20s, and it just ended. You know, the minute the men realized that that they could make money, Money, it was like, thank you, women, you're gone. And the biggest thing that I got from the show, and what's interesting is we're heading now into the second series, which is going to be... um, actresses, influential actresses, and so many of the actresses that also influenced me as a child. Mm -hmm. I'll be interviewing and we'll be watching films. So, you know, that's going to be incredibly exciting. But the biggest issue that I have found, and I don't know where to begin now, is that women just didn't get credit for all the work that they did. Polly Platt never got credit for all the work that Peter Bogdanovich. with Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. And so that stamp of filmmaking, yeah. it's it's very blurry. And Alma Hitchcock and Joan Harrison, who worked who worked with Alfred Hitchcock, it's very it's very blurry and it, it we just find it more palatable to accept that a man is more talented than a woman. We have the AFI top one hundred list, which I always reference. It gets revised every year. They change it. I was making fun of this film, My Fair Lady. I said, why is My Fair Lady on the top 100 list? You could put, let's put Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. You know, right. let's put Harlan County, USA. And no, they take it off and they put on Shawshank Redemption. You know, like right. every year, that AFI list, I'm not sure who, who is making the list. Mm-hmm. But it's primarily men, and we feel more comfortable saying that men are better filmmakers than women. I don't know why this is, but it's, it's you know, if you tell a girl her entire life that, you know, she can't do something, right. that's already a burden, number one. Number two, it's just that it's very hard for these women to get secondary jobs. So Jane Campion does the piano, and then you think it's going to lead to something. If a man made that film, it's like he'd have his next five movies made. Right. I mean, if you, if you look, you know, Badlands, Steven Spiel, or tar- you go really that that movie got him his whole career yeah. so he was able to become steven spielberg and martin scorsese was able to become uh, scorsese but a female director is not given the opportunities and what director from amy heckerling to allison anders to nora efron you know they made their first films and they thought aha i've arrived now I'm going to be given these opportunities. It was like, oh, no, you're not. And so then they have to sit back. They have to write their own material. And then that's why I think they end up becoming more personal stories or they move into directing. Another person I just want to quickly say is um, Mira Nair from Salam Bombay. One of the great... If you watch that film, you're not going to tell me that that woman is not capable of doing anything because it's incomprehensible the places that she goes with the camera also while while telling a narrative story and a few years later we do a movie that is one quarter as good of that it, uh, slumdog millionaire mm-hmm. 
compare Slumdog Millionaire with Salam Bombay, and you tell me what's a better movie. You know, there is the list, and it is Elaine May and Lee Grant and Amy Heckerling and Penelope Spheris and Ida Lupina, Dorothy Arzner. Vlad Bigelow, Jane Campion, Mary Heron, uh, Catherine Hardwick, Alison Anders, who we've talked about, uh, Lena Vertmuller, Agnes Varda, Claire Denis, uh, Mia Hansen-Love, who's a young French filmmaker who, whose movies I've really liked lately, Kelly Reichardt, Chantelle Ackerman, and even Nancy Myers, you know, who is every bit, I believe, as rigorously a tourist as Michael Haneke. I mean, I really do think she is an a tourist, uh, regardless of what you think of her movies. That, that's kind of the list, but there is always a name that is never mentioned or talked about, and there are ideological problems when you bring up the greatest female filmmaker of all time, the only one who created a new cinematic language that is the founding blocks for movies now. I mean, the most innovative female filmmaker in history, and that is Lenny Reifenstahl. Olympia and Triumph of the Will are the two greatest movies ever made by a woman or a man, and yet we often leave her off the list for ideological reasons, because I guess they color some people's perspective. And should that be the case for this filmmaker? Because if you're going to argue that, I don't know, Suzanne Beers is a better director than Lenny Reifenstahl, we're going to have some kind of problem. But what do you do with a Lenny Reifenstahl? How do you put her into this world or fit her into this list? Again, in Trailblazing Women, I it becomes, uh, unfortunately, very uh, troubling to bring her up. I agree with you. Uh, she was the first person to use slow motion photography in terms of sports, which is now we. this is what people do. Uh, she used tracking shots, um, just the, you know, the use of the close up. Again, you can look at her work and, and see, you know, Steven Spielberg, oh. you can it's all it's copied and copied and copied and copied and yet because of the political uh you know connotations you in this current environment unfortunately the powers that be uh you cannot bring her name up because you know you're going to be like oh, you're neiliana douglas is a nazi <laughs> sympathizer but I'm, I'm just talking about the tracking shot and unfortunately in any you know context uh i why I would have brought her up. I'd like to bring her up. It becomes extremely challenging. But I agree with you. How do you not bring her into the into the conversation? She was brought into the conversation back in the still in the eighties when right. I was learning about film. But now it's no, she's not uh, brought up at all. Finally, I'm about to embark on my first season of writing and directing a web series, and I know. That your web series was very successful, ran for four seasons, often with an audience of 1.5 million people or so. Is there any advice or anything you want to warn me about before I head into this uh, endeavor? Well, that is – do you get along with your – is it a union show? Do you get along with your crew? Uh, We we are – now, we haven't – we're still casting. We're still scouting locations, and I'm finishing the last script of the series today. So I don't know if it's going to be union or not. Yeah, see, that's that's the problem. Here was these were my philosophies in terms of uh, of I knew everything backwards and forwards. You know, I have this, this theory, which is I call the roulette wheel of insanity, meaning you've got to think of every problem, you know, anything on a movie. It's, you know, you don't want to be on the set and say, why didn't we take care of that? So it's like you try to you've got to think 
much more about time management and the crew and every possible thing that could go wrong, including sound, you know, on a web series, I think, uh, you know, how far is the drive time? Your crew is going to – is I find in a web series, your, your crew can just make you or break you. So it's like the little – I like to sort of coach everybody having been an actor for 20 years. I like to have an understanding of when the actors get to the set, make sure they get a cup of coffee, make sure they have a nice place to sit – all this, incidentally, on my own uh, web series that I'm producing, The Skinny, is I don't have any kind of power anymore. <laughs> I'm just a producer on it in a minute. And we don't have any of the things that I had established on Easy to Assemble. Again, I thought that by establishing these certain things that everybody would do them, but they haven't. But it's trying to, it to create an environment because it always goes to the director, an environment where people feel that they have the time to create something and that your crew does not dominate by making you feel that you don't understand camera angles or you don't understand lighting because you do. You understand all of it and you have to really be forceful in terms of you got to get that first shot off by 10 o'clock. I mean, uh, those those are the things that will kill you and you have to understand like you have to go through your script and understand, okay, I'm going to need and talk to your crew and your line producer and all those people. I try to involve everybody in my journey and just to say like, listen, I know you're just doing this for your pension, but this is actually, this means something to me. This is my life, you know, like, and so I try to do as much prep as, as possible because once you get on the set, it's just a ticking time bomb. And, um, and trying to inspire because everybody is at that point. It, they're just they're just there, and the, you know you like it's happening. We're filming this right now. And my dream that I wrote, and you have probably months and months to write and ruminate and look at films is now like we got to go, we got to go, right. we got to go. And you go, all right, I don't care anymore. Just just do it. So I prefer to shot list and do everything. And if you're also directing, yes. I see. I'm a big. Some people don't do shot lists. I admire them, but I have shot lists. I talk to the DP extensively. I talk to the sound person because sound will kill you if you're in a place where you don't have the right sound or you don't have a. If if you want booming sound versus what a lav is like, and you know, you know how long it takes to lav ten people. Like that's what's going to kill you. And and to me, doing a web series is that it's marrying the technical part. You know, when you're not Martin Scorsese, when you don't have like, oh, let's leisurely do a scene over two days. You know, it's not it's not that way. But uh, but welcome to the web series world. Give me love. 